We are starting a new series, and I think at the beginning of the year, we all feel this need for a little bit of a renewal this year, to maybe do some things differently than what we did last year, and try some new things, live, live on the adventurous side, and maybe not be so withheld or holding back like we have been, uh, is maybe your, your challenge in life. But I want to share with you a message as we're going to pick up in the letter to the Corinthian church in First and Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, during one of his missionary journeys, goes to this place called Corinth. And he begins to share the gospel and the church begins to ground its roots and it sprouts out of the ground, if you will, and becomes uh, the body of Christ, one of the many uh, churches that Paul had planted during his missionary journeys. You can find that in the midway through the book of Acts, which we've already preached through. But now we're going to look at why did he write these letters, if you will, these epistles, probably more aptly called letters correctly. They're very personal in nature and what was going on. And I hope what we're going to take away over the next couple of days, probably the rest of this year, as we work through the Corinthian letters, I was sharing with Pastor Corey, there's 16 chapters just in the first letter. And I'm not sure I can do that in 16 Sundays, probably not. You might not like 16 Sundays of the Corinthians. We might have to spread that out a little bit more. But we want to bless you today by opening God's Word to 1 Corinthians. And I want to start off while you're finding your place in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I want to share with you just a a little bit of an image. Now, uh, when I came to church this morning, I looked down at my van, and this was the image that I saw. No kidding. Not making it up. Just the timing of God is perfect, right? It's the right rear tire on my van was showing me that I needed to check the pressure. Now, mine was the right rear. This was all I could find. However, it was an indicator to my wife that I had failed to do something right? Keeping the tires inflated properly. But in reality, what they are for you and I is we have check engine lights that come on in our vehicle from time to time. And they're supposed to, although they're called dummy lights, they're supposed to tell us when something needs to be serviced or something needs to be done. And what the goal is, is that we get ahead of it so that we don't have a problem. Let me share with you a problem that happens to tires. The next picture will show you what a tire looks like when your wife puts air in it right? Way too much air. What happens? The, the center gets too inflated and it doesn't touch the ground properly and the middle of the tire gets wore out. We know it's overinflated. It needs to be the right amount of air. But some of you rode into church this morning and here's what your tire looked like. It looked like the next picture. It should be completely shredded, right? That's what some of us rode in on. And you know how many people are going through life riding on tires that look like this? Folks, that's what's going on in the life of not only the secular world, but I would argue in the life of the church, and this one is no exception. Many of us are riding on tires in our spiritual life that look like this, that there's no retread hope for them. They're completely flat, and we're wondering, honey, do you hear something? Right? If you've ever had a tire look like that on your car, you don't have to ask long, is there something wrong? You know because it's immediately pulling to the left or the right and you're thump, 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 thump going down the road, riding on the rim. Folks, that's what's going on in the spiritual life of many. That was what was going on in the spiritual life of the church in Corinth as Paul was ministering to them and writing to them. While they were the body of Christ, while they had come to the salvation knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were running on a tire that looked like this spiritually in their life. And they didn't know that anything was wrong. There was normal, it was just going through the motions of normal activity. They never recognized the signs of the check engine light coming on for their vehicle. So here's what I want to do as we work through the Corinthian letters. I want us to be able to take a look at how do we apply that to our life and how do we assess 
what's going on on our dashboard spiritually and what lights may be coming on to give us some indicators of what we need to be looking for and that way we can travel the road of our spiritual walk in Christ with good tires where the rubber meets the road and we can help others along that journey. So I want to give you a few things. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. If you're there, say amen. Picking up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we're going to see what the Apostle Paul writes to this church that he loved. Going to God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. So Father, we thank you for the reading of your word, and we pray now as the early book of Acts reminds us that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to prayer. Lord, and we we thank you for this blessing. And Father, we pray now that the Holy Spirit would open our minds and, and our hearts to recognize the indicators of things to come and things to look out for and how we can be the church you've called us to be. Father, help us to apply the letter to Corinth to our own hearts right here in Pine Bluff, North Carolina, and the church across the world. Father, we thank you. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So what are we going to do? I'm going to take you on a trip, if you will, uh, and I want to share with you five areas of spiritual renewal that we can apply to our daily life, our daily walk with Christ, our life with the church, as it applies to us for this year, and I would argue, like God's Word, the lessons are timeless. We can take it with us wherever we go. But if we start today, how many of y'all made New Year's resolutions, right? That's something people like to do. I don't care for resolutions myself because they don't last too long, right? We all know that. That's our nature. We don't stick with resolutions too often. But one thing I do find necessary is renewal, amen? We can find some things that will give us some spiritual renewal as we move forward. And I want to share five of those with you very quickly. Number one, I want us to go to the text and go back to chapter 1, verse 1. And let's look what was going on and what Paul called this church, if you will, the church to the church, as he's writing to a specific location and a specific people. He uses an interesting word when he refers to the word church. Now, in our culture, in our society... Church is known by a lot of different names, not all of them good, right? One of them is hypocrite. I love that one. Once had a man tell me, Pastor, I can't go to that church. It's full of hypocrites. I said, no, it's not, sir. It's never full. There's always room for one more. I mean, that's the reality of it. That's the body of Christ. But many have the view of the church being that way, that we're a a bunch of self-righteous people. I argue with you, we are all sinners. And if you've been saved by the grace, you're a sinner who's been sanctified by Jesus Christ who occasionally sins. Adrian Rogers put it this way. He says, in Christ, I can sin all I want to. The difference is I no longer want to. God has fixed my wanter. My wanter is no longer broken. I desire the things of God, and I desire to live as the body of Christ. I desire to be a member of the oikos theos, the household of God. Therefore, I am the church. The church is not the building. The church is its people. And as Paul was communicating this, it's very important for us to understand who is this audience that Paul is talking to. He is not worried about the Corinthian secular culture that's going on at the Acro-Corinth there in in Corinth. 
He's not worried about the Roman colony that established its rule and domain around 147 BC. He's not worried about Caesar Augustus. He's not worried about the Senate or any of the other things. He's not worried about the Olympic Games or the Isthmus Games that took place there in Corinth. He's talking to the church and he identifies them to make sure they understand who they are and why he's writing this letter. So often, I think, in the church, we look at the scriptures as applying to those outside the church. And in reality, almost all of the scriptures apply to the body of Christ, not to the heathen, not to the lost. But man, how quickly we hear, good message, pastor. Sure wish there was someone here in the church today that needed to hear that one. And they go on to their lunch realizing that what God has given us in his word in this New Testament that we read and we cling to, even the Old Testament was a short shadow of the things to come. And the New Testament is letters written to the bride of Christ, to the church of God, as Paul makes it clear. The church, the very word ecclesia, this word universal church, the real word comes the Catholic church, not the Roman Catholic church, but the word Catholic means universal in its understanding. And it's applied to all believers across The world, understood as a singular assembly, sometimes all believers throughout time. That's who we are as the body of Christ, the gathering of assembly. In Acts chapter 17 and a few other places, you can even find the Greek word ekklesia used to describe the heathen gathering of the riotous mob that wanted to prevent Paul from proclaiming the gospel. The scriptures talk about that ekklesia, that gathering of the unchurched, the heathen being there in Corinth. It's interesting that the Greek understood ecclesia as to be nothing more than assembly. It's come to be known for us today as those who are indeed called out ones, although that etymology is probably improperly used often. The ecclesia is the gathering of the body, the gathering of a group, and we, the church of Christ, are the ecclesia, the kuriakos, if you will, under the kurios, the Lord Jesus Christ is who we are. But not only does Paul address it to the church, he understands who the church belongs to. Notice he says it's the church of God, belonging to God. It's not the things of this world. It's not yours. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's God's church, and Christ is the head. Can I hear it? Amen. Folks, if you're following anybody other than Christ, I don't care how good your preacher speaks or the latter, or how much he doesn't speak well, or how popular it may be. We live in a culture today that has popularity as a great value. Well, I sure like the way that guy says it. I sure like the way that choir sounds. I sure like the music that's going on there. Folks, the church belongs to God Almighty, not a particular pastor or a particular power group within a church. Now, we don't have that problem here, amen? Amen. Glad you all agreed with that. Just confirming what I thought all along, right? But the church belongs to God. It is His church. The church belonging to God. And notice Paul gives a specific location thirdly about this issue. I find it absolutely fascinating when we put our microscope lens on and we look at what the text says. Notice he calls them by name where they are. He didn't write this letter to Galatia. He didn't write it to Ephesus. He didn't write it to Philippi. He didn't write it to anybody else. He was speaking specifically to what was going on in the life of Corinth. Why? Because he knew these people. He had spent time with these people. He had evangelized, he had been in homes, he had laid hands on, he had prayed with them, and he saw their spiritual development, and at one point in his letter, he refers to them as his child, as his church, as his, him being their spiritual father, 
and their birth in Christ coming through the gospel of evangelism that he had. But notice he calls them by name. You see, while there may be a universal church, there are also local assemblies that God has ordained and and allowed us to be a part of. How do we know that? In Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, matter of fact, I'm going to share a few names with you when he refers to the locations. He gives us these locations here in Scripture. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, he identifies the uniqueness of the assembly, dealing and addressing seven churches in Asia Minor by name. Now, this is Jesus being recorded by the Apostle John. While he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, in a vision, Jesus speaks to him and he tells them, write down all the things that you see and that I tell you. And here we have this record in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And he addresses the churches. He says, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, I would argue to Pine Bluff. God's word speaks to us individually. It's not a random anomaly. God is very specific when he's writing to his church. And when Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth, he wants to make sure that they understand who they are and who he is speaking to specifically, dealing with every one of their issues that have been brought up in his letters to the Corinthians. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we see that only two of those seven churches listed are commended by the Lord for their faithfulness. The other five are rebuked for some issue. And we don't have time for that today, but I want to leave you with this key point about understanding the renewed identity in the church. The church of Jesus Christ is the only place where its membership dues were paid by the owner. Think about that for a minute. You join a club, whether it's a hunting club or a fitness club or whatever kind of thing you want to join, you have to pay to be a part of it and someone else has to let you be a part of it. Did you know that the church is the only place where its membership dues were paid by Jesus Christ himself? It's the blood of Christ that allows you to even become part of the body of Christ. Without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you are not part of the body of Christ. There is only one way to salvation, and his name is Jesus. And if you enter in by any other door, the scripture said you'd be equivalent to a thief or a robber trying to sneak your way in, but it won't hold. One day, God will separate the wheat from the tares. That's not our job to do. That's God's job to do. And I promise you, he will be faithful in doing that. Do you know that your membership is secure because of Jesus Christ? Or are you still trying to pay your own dues? We hope it's the, the former. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We have no other way to join the, the church, the universal other than coming through the door that Jesus opened. I am the door. I am the way. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. No one comes to the Father except by me. But secondly, I want to share with you a renewed awareness as we kick off this year. Not only a renewed understanding of who we are as the church, but a renewed awareness of the sanctification that we have in Christ Jesus Notice in verse 2, Paul addresses this fact, and he says not only to Corinth, but then he takes it another level further. Just to make sure, in case there's any confusion for those that would have been there, as Paul's letter would have been read to them, because you see, there was a lot of things going on in Christ that are contrary to what we find in verse 2. And Paul wants to recall their memory of being exactly who they're supposed to be 
Because he knows as he's going to get into it in the letter, he's going to address some things that show that there are other than sanctified activities going on amongst the body of Christ in Corinth. Notice he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The very issue of to be sanctified means to become or be dedicated to God, either in distinction, devotion, or in moral purity. When we're sanctified through Christ, there's only one way that we can become sanctified. In the Old Testament, the the Hebrew scriptures tell us about the high priest in this day called Yom Kippur, where the high priest would offer a sacrifice for his own sins. Then he would go before the Holy of Holies on behalf of the nation of Israel, and he would offer a sin offering for the nation to be sanctified, to be covered, if you will, by blood. But you see, that covering would never completely purify them. They would have to do this year in and year out, over and over and over I don't know about y'all, but I am so grateful that Jesus' blood on the cross of Calvary paid for my sins once and for all as he proclaimed to Telestai, it is finished. Folks, there's nothing else that we need to do other than place our trust and faith in Christ, repent of our sins, to be baptized in the waters, to be in fellowship with his community, and to begin living a life of discipleship. Folks, that is the salvation, that is the sanctification process that we are in, in Christ Jesus. There's no other way than to trust and obey. I think we sang that song a moment ago. Man, how quickly we can sing it, though. But our lives often emulate that we need to be reminded of this issue, to trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So let me give you three truths about the sanctification that we have in Jesus Christ. Number one, we're sanctified by Christ, sanctified by his blood. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the writer of Hebrews Depending on how you take, and I won't go down a theological rabbit hole for a moment, but depending on who you think the writer was, that writer may have spent some time in Corinth, maybe even pastoring the church in Corinth there, and he reminds the audience in Hebrews chapter 9 that for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Very clear on that. Does it make sense now when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and, and when he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world? Because he knew what would follow. The sanctification that we have comes by Christ, by the blood that was shed on Golgotha's hill, by Calvary's cross. Jesus died on that glorious first Christmas tree. But secondly, we know that we're not only sanctified by Christ, we are sanctified in Christ. What do we mean by being sanctified in Christ? The scripture is very clear that Jesus did something for you and I that we could never do for ourselves. What was that thing that he did for us? He provided the pure offering... He who knew no sin became sin so that we may be his righteousness. That's what Paul writes to the Corinthian church in his second epistle that we have recorded in Scripture. He who knew no sin, a perfect, blameless, spotless Lamb of God that was offered up. When we are sanctified, we are sanctified in Christ. We're sanctified by his blood. We're sanctified in his righteousness. But thirdly, we're sanctified for Christ. We're sanctified for Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 10, it tells us very clearly that for we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, the truth about sanctification, that it was done by Christ, it was done in Christ, and it was sanctified. We are sanctified for him, 
God has a purpose for you the very same way when God formed formed Adam out of the ground, out of the Adama, the dirt, and he breathed life into it and created Adam and said, go forth and have dominion. The very same purpose for that creation, we have the same purpose in Christ Jesus now to be his workmanship, to have the dominion that he intended for Adam and woman to have over all creation and to go forth and proclaim his glorious truth to the ends of the earth. And lo, I'm with you to the end of the age, he reminds us. If we're not sanctified in Christ, we have no part of Christ. Therefore, Christ is not our head. Therefore, we are not the church of Christ. But if we are in Christ, we're sanctified by Christ. We're purified for Christ. We are sanctified for the work he's called us to. Therefore, we are the church that he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. What a beautiful understanding that, folks, it's not my job. It's not the deacon's job, it's not elder's job, it's not Sunday school teacher's job. It's none of our jobs to build Christ's church. While we all have a stewardship responsibility with what gifting God has given us, it is God's responsibility that he has told us, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Isn't it wonderful that we can rest renewed in our sanctification that we have in Jesus Christ? But thirdly, I want to share with you a renewed desire for assembly. Notice in the second part of verse 2, he says, called to be saints together. Not individually, not on the boat, on the lake, thinking about fishing, right? He's called us to be the saints together in assembly. That's what assembly means, to gather together. He's addressing it very seriously to the church that's there in Corinth. Called, kaleo. Summoned to be saints. Hagios, that word holy and righteous, to join together in the body of Christ. It's what makes the church so different than anything else we know in our culture, than anything we know in civilization and society. What unites us together is not the jersey we wear, it's not the team we root for, it's the fact that we are indeed brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a a blood bond because of the blood of Jesus Christ that unites us all. The same blood that runs through your veins now in sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit is the same blood running through my veins. Jesus even said, I didn't call for there to be peace. Matter of fact, father will be against brother, mother will be against daughter. But isn't it wonderful that in Christ we're to be united in all things? In all things, unity. Why? Because the same blood runs through your veins now that's been sanctified by Jesus Christ. Black, yellow, red, or white, they are all precious in His sight. Amen? That's what we are called to be as the church, a renewed desire to be together. So what do we do? What's the example? Why do we have to be together? Number one, I want to share with you that there's spiritual strength in numbers because a Christian without a church is indeed an orphan. A Christian without a church is an orphan, right? So here's the spiritual strength in numbers. I want to share with you really quickly. A couple of passages of Scripture, just write them down in your notes. I'm not going to read them all for you. But there's an example in Scripture that, that the, the wisest man to ever live or would ever live by the name of Solomon records for us in Ecclesiastes, this wisdom literature book. In Ecclesiastes 4.14, he says the following, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a three-cord is not quickly broken. Folks, I don't know about you, but there are spiritual warfare going on in my life, in my family's life, in my wife's life, in my life, in my children's life on a daily basis. And if I tried to fight those things all by myself, 
One I might prevail against. Two will overtake me. Three will surely beat me under. Isn't it wonderful that we have a church body that we can come together and be strengthened by, that when I'm spiritually in need, or when I'm hurting, or when I'm broken, or I need healing, I can talk to my brothers to my left and right, and they will lift me up. Matter of fact, in Exodus, in chapter 17, we see this great battle that Moses goes, and Israel defeats Amalek in the Old Testament. But Moses is so weary that he can't keep his arms up, and he was told, as long as your arms are up, you'll prevail. Now, that's great, right? Now, if we did this, and I, I, had some, I had some folks in my younger years that made me do this for a long time, right? And I, got, I, I learned some new tricks when I was in the military. And I would stand like this for a long time until eventually I could not, for the life of me, hold my arms up any longer. And then I'd get them back up, right? And they'd find some other devilish way of inflicting bodily pain on me. But eventually, my arms, no matter how strong we are, would drop to your side. You see, Moses was doing well when he was on his own strength. But what God was showing Moses was, you can't do this alone. Because your arms are going to begin to fall. You can only carry but so much. You can only be there but so much. And you know what you need? You need brothers to come alongside you so that they can help you. In verse 12 it says, but Moses' hands grew weary, so they, had a, they took a stone and they put it under him so he could sit down. He sat on it. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands... One on one side, one on the other side. So his hands were steadily until going down of the sun. Then Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. What a beautiful picture, even for the New Testament church to understand that when we gather together, the purpose of the assembly is because eventually, I don't know about you, but my arms get tired, your arms get tired, and I need someone to come alongside me and hold them up. And when that fails, and I've got no one to hold up my arms, when you've got no church to help hold up your arms, when you've got no small group, no Sunday school class to help lift you up when you're going through difficulty, what's the one thing we say? God, why have you abandoned me? We start throwing stones and saying, well, the church isn't there. Well, folks, we've got to be part of it because we need each other. A renewed desire to assembly helps us understand that there is spiritual strength in numbers. But there's also spiritual work that needs to be done together. Point number two, spiritual work must be done together. There's a reason God gave us gifts to do that. As we'll see later on, I don't know, next year sometime in chapter 12, we're going to get into understanding this issue of the gifts. But he says this, now there are various of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you don't remember none of it, just hit 1 Corinthians 12, 7. The reason God gave us the gift we have is for the common good of the body of Christ, to edify and to uplift and to facilitate godliness amongst God's people. Spiritual work must be done in community. We can't do it alone. It takes all of us together. Every hand, every feet, every eye, every nose, every tongue. The undesirable parts, the desirable parts. We all work in concert the way God has created His church. But too often, folks, I think we're like that football team. You ever seen a football team play football? And right off the bat, it's like the Dallas Cowboys and the Redskins beating last week. Right off the bat, it's like 47 to 0. And the team that's got 0, you watch their sideline. Did y'all see that game? Not picking on y'all, by the way. Jesus loves you. 
But they start fighting. And one player punches the other player in the face on the same team. Folks, that's what happens even in the church when we're divided, when we, re- we think we're fighting a losing battle that we can't possibly overcome and we lose. Guess what happens? We start fighting against each other. And next thing you know, you got the deacon punching the other deacon. Or, okay, the deacon punching the pastor, right? That's never happened here, by the way. But, but you understand the concept. When, when we're down and out and we're not working together, we get defeated and we spirit, spiritually feel the underdog and we start to fight about all the other stuff because we're taking our eyes off Jesus and what he's called us to. There's a reason God's given us the gifts we have and it's for the manifestation of the Spirit of God for the common good of his church. Not your church, his church. But thirdly, there's a spiritual mandate that we are to assemble together. Folks, Facebook, I love you guys. Keep watching. Leave us some comments. But Facebook, social media, while all those things may be necessary at different seasons of our life because of circumstances, if you're homebound and you're watching, God bless you. Continue to watch. We will continue to love on you and minister to you the best we know to minister to you. But there's no exception for meeting together. Here's what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, 22. He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. That's good, isn't it? Here's what he says in the next verse. And, underline that, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Stir up. You ever stir the pot? Right? Some of y'all do. Right? We know. Stir the pot. Stir each other up to good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Folks, that's the renewed desire we should have as the body of Christ, to be amongst the people of God, doing the very work He's called us to. And if there's no desire for us to be doing those things, if we're not willing to rearrange whatever's going on in our lives that stops us from being able to fellowship and, dis- and be discipled together as the body of Christ. If there's no desire, then your desire is broke and it needs to get fixed because there should be a desire for the people of God to gather with the people of God. And I'll just put this disclaimer out here. If it's not this church and you're so broken that you've got to go somewhere else, let us send you with our blessings and help find a place where you can desire to be amongst that fellowship. Because, folks, that's what God has called us to be and called us to do. It is a spiritual mandate through Scripture that we gather together. It is our togetherness that makes us the church of Christ. When we're not together... We're an individual believer. We're a hand, a finger, a foot. But you ever try to do something with one finger that requires the whole body? It's pretty hard to do, right? Hard to tote that 50-pound sack of something when you're just trying to do it with your pinky finger, right? It requires the back and the arms and everything working again. Bend at the knees, right? We've got to work together as the body of Christ. But fourthly, I want to share with you another thing that we need to be renewed in is our renewed witness. Notice what he tells the church in the last part of verse 2 with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. 
See, Paul was all about expanding and working and taking the ministry to places that hadn't been evangelized yet. But he used the church as the primary mechanism for the witness of the body of Christ. The work of the gathered church does a few things. What do we do when we gather together? I want to share with you. You don't have to write them down, but seven real quick things that we do when we gather together. Number one, we glorify God. Amen? We glorify God. All of our life should be spent this way, yet gathering declares this purpose as we see through scriptures. Number two, and I'm going to go through these quickly for the purpose of time. Number two, we glorify God, but we exemplify the church. We are God's people, Christ's body, the Spirit's temple, the shepherd's flock, the vine's branch, the kingdom's citizen, and the demonstration of God's wisdom and peace. For a dying world who doesn't know the kingdom of God, they can see it in you and me when they walk through the doors as a visitor. You know how much courage it takes for someone who is lost, I'll just call it that, who has no salvation experience with Jesus Christ to come into the doors of a church and to walk into our culture, right? As great as it is, some of y'all scare me, right? And I know you. Imagine how difficult it is for a lost person that has mustered up the courage, that feels drawn by the conviction that they need to come to the church because that's where God is. That's where God's people are. That's where God's word will be spoken. And they don't understand God's word from Morse code most of the time. But something is drawing them. We know that's something. We sung about it. The Holy Spirit in John 14 and John 15 that God gave us, that Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 6, verse 44, I believe it is, it says, unless the Father calls you and draws him to himself, no man comes on his own. The Father draws them. And that Holy Spirit, when that person comes into the church for the first time, we can overwhelm them. But man, what a witness when we wrap our arms around them and we greet them and we say, hello, God loves you, despite you. God's already factored in my deficiencies, by the way. You think about that for a minute. That's how much he loves me. That he already has factored in my mistakes and my errors and my issues and my peculiarities. He's already factored them into who I am when he called me to be a pastor, to be a deacon, to be a Sunday school teacher. He's already factored yours in too, by the way. How scary a church can be, but we exemplify God. We are God's people. We're the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God here on earth. But thirdly, we edify the saints. Everything is done in gathering should be done for building up the saints as Paul is going to describe throughout his letters to the Corinthian church, to the Ephesian church, the Philippian church, to the Galatian church, to all of them, to the Roman church. Everything we do to edify, to lift up, to build up, to strengthen. Express number four, expresses and promotes fellowship, the koinonia, that sense of family that we have. It's not only an act that we do, but it's an expression and a promotion of the fellowship and the family that we have because we are the family of God. Fifthly, it impresses outsiders. Oh, why do we care about them? We ought to because they ought to see something that's so radically different from them that it draws their attention. Hmm, I wonder. They got something I don't got. There's something missing in my life. That place seems like it's got something. I need to go check that out. See, the world's looking for answers, folks. Why do you think we have the economy that we have? Why do you think we have the social media that we have? Why do you think we have the Facebook, the, the meta, the whatever you want to call it that's going on today that people are just flocking to? Because they're looking for an answer to life's issues. And they're hoping they can find it on a YouTube video or on a Facebook or on a social media post, on a Twitter or a Snapchat or something else. 
But what it should be found and where it can be found is with the church of God. We ought to be trying to impress outsiders so that we can share with them and win an opportunity. As Paul said, I've become all things to all men, so by some I might win a few so we can proclaim the gospel to them. But number six, it commemorates and proclaims salvation. Our witness is the proclamation of the good news that's transformed our lives if we've been transformed. I once remember as as pastors, we sit around, we talk about how can we witness to folks and how can we outreach to our community and how how is your church, pastor? You know, we we talk to that pastor that's got 10,000 people at his church and new people are coming every week and they got a thousand different ministries. And we say, well, how do you do that? And I remember this one pastor says it this way. We don't have a formal outreach program. We all scratched our head. What do you mean? He says, here's what I think. Found people, find people. Think about that for a minute. Found people, find people that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, we want to proclaim salvation to others, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our friends, to the new family that just moved in, to the person that we don't know from Adam, but we're in the car line with them and their child's going to the same school my child's going to. Found people, find people. That's the program that Jesus initiated for us to proclaim the truth of his salvation. Go and make disciples, Jesus told us in Matthew's gospel. But lastly, it illumines and affirms the members of the people, the household of God, the family of God. You see, when we gather together, our renewed witness is that others get to see that light on a hill that can't be hidden, the light of the world. We are the candle, if you will, by which others find their way to salvation. Fifthly, let me close with this point. Number five, look in verse three with me. Our renewed identity in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the pronoun used there, the the way Paul described God our Father. A unity that we have now as the same family of God with the same headship of the God of creation and the Lord, Kurios, Jesus Christ. The Messiah, the one Simeon we talked about last week, says, I have seen the Christ, the Lord's Christ. What a beautiful picture for us. So three requirements if our identity is found in the Lord. If our identity is in Christ, here's three things that need to be present. Number one, we will unite with a local assembly. It's not an option. God's church calls us to do that. Again, if you're not a member of a local church, then you're a spiritual Christian orphan looking for a home to live in. That was never intended to be God's way. Number two, be faithful to your local assembly. Be faithful to your local assembly. We sang the song, trust and obey, trust and obey, for there is no other way, right? And I love that song, but I I also kind of grip and grimace every time I hear it because I know the reality of that song. We don't want to preach on obedience too often because we live in a culture and a time that we don't like obeying anything. We don't like to be told what to do as Americans. It's my life. I'll live it the way I want to live it. Well, if you're a part of the church, let me share a little insight with you. It's no longer your life. For you have died to self and you're alive in Christ Jesus. We live to glorify him. And I know it's easier to say it from a pulpit than to live it tomorrow morning. Some of you will be tested before you leave the driveway, right? It's the reality of the life we live in. 
but we're called to be faithful to our church. And if you don't like something, talk to your pastor. Talk to your deacons. Don't rumor mill behind the scenes and scuttlebutt and share all the the bad stuff that's going on because you don't know. Nothing drives me more nuts than people that have a problem that never take it to the person that could address the problem to begin with in the first place. I mean, it's just crazy to me. I see it all the time in every organization. It's not just churches, but around, around, it's our nature. We want to talk about the issues with people that have no ability to influence or make it any different. And all we do is stir the pot in a negative way. Be faithful to our assembly. And thirdly, be ready for the work that God has called you to, that God has called us to, that God has called the church to. You see, there are some layers to this thing of the work that God's called you to do. He's called you to do something. If you're a member of this body of Christ, I want to ask you this, and I'll challenge you with this. Where are you serving the body? 80% of the ministry in this church is done by 20% of the people. That's in every church, by the way, so don't feel bad about yourself too much, right? But there's a place for you to serve if you're not serving. There's an opportunity for you to serve. And I know this about your pastor. If you have a passion for something, he will be your biggest champion. I will, I will, I will harness a team of oxen behind you to help you plow whatever hoe and row that God has called you and your gifting and your passions if it aligns with what we need to be doing as a church. I will be your biggest advocate. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. It was the same for Jesus' day, and it's the same in our day. Where are you serving? Or are you just consuming? It's like going to a buffet, and I know you all are going to do this when you leave here. You're going to go to a buffet, and you're going to feed yourself from the great trough, right? You're going to try everything on the menu. Now, imagine going to that buffet, and then when you got done with your meal, you're all fat, happy, and satisfied, right? Ready for a nap. You've got to have your husband drive home because you're ready to take a nap on the way. That's the kind of fool I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying. But instead of paying the bill, you just walk out the door. Get in your car, drive home. Folks, you know that's what happens in every church across America on a daily basis on Sunday morning. You come and consume. You come and get fattened and happy and get fed up. And you walk out the door without ever giving back to Christ, without ever serving the body, without even wondering, how could I give back? What could I do? Well, I pay my tithe. Keep your tithe. Come and serve. See what God can do with that. He don't need your money, right? Now, keep tithing, by the way. Stewardship, I'll get in trouble if I don't say that. But, but. However, you understand the point. Folks, there's a place for every single member of the body in this church to serve. And I'm firmly, I firmly believe this. God will not continue to bless our church with growth and reaching this community until our people get off their hands and begin serving. We can't do it. We just can't do it. Uh, that's the bottom line. We need some renewed experience of, of service in our church. But it begins with renewing who we are in Christ and what he's called us to be in the local body, to be faithful, to be ready there's more work here than the 20% can possibly do. And I'll be honest with you, it's, it is defeating. It is discouraging when you're part of that 20% and you work yourself to death and nobody helps you. You get discouraged. And I won't go too much further with that.
Folks, we all need to serve. We all have a place to serve. God has given us this. So let me close with an illustration. Dunkin' Donuts recently has come across their new slogan. And I think it's pretty cool because I like coffee, right? I'm a coffee connoisseur. I'm kind of becoming a coffee snob at this point in my life, right? But their statement is, America runs on Dunkin'. Isn't that cool? I don't like Dunkin' Donuts coffee, but anyway, America runs on Dunkin'. Here's what I think is going on in America. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like in the church. You'll go to the next picture for me. Here's what we're running on in the church. We've got a flat tire we've thrown the donut on, and we're hoping we can get to our destination. But we know 45 miles an hour, right? How many of y'all ever had a donut on your car? You know the deal. You're still driving like you've got the regular tire on, right? They pass by me all the time. I'm near them. There it goes. Like, they got a donut on. They're going to be in a ditch here before long. Still driving 65 and a 35, but they got a donut on their car. They're not adhering to the warning signs. They don't care that the pressure sensor light's constantly flashing on the dash now because it recognizes you got a donut and all of your systems are out of whack now. That's an image, I think, of much of the church today. Folks, and I will argue that many of us look like that. You could even maybe say this church is running with a donut on. We're hoping it'll just keep going. And we never stop to get the tire that's on the ground. We never address the issues that are causing us to potentially have a train wreck because we don't even recognize the danger in running with a spiritual donut in our life. Folks, that's going on all around us. I'd argue there's a little taste of that even in our church. We've got a donut on, but we're still wanting to run 55. Not good. And if that's your life, your spiritual life, you've got a donut on and you're still trying to run 65, train wreck's coming. God will put you in a ditch to where you can't do nothing but look up to see him. It happens time and time again. How do we fix it? You know, the three crosses, the image of Calvary. It was one on the right who accepted Christ and Jesus looked at him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He believed in who the Messiah was. The other one on the other cross, on the right hand side, on the far right hand side, I guess, as you're looking at it, scoffed and mocked and said, this man can't even save himself, said he'd be the savior of the world. (laughs) One received salvation that day. One didn't. One put his trust and faith in Christ and heard the words, today you will be with me in paradise. And then Jesus said, it is finished. All that needed to be done for your salvation was done on Golgotha's cross, on Golgotha's hill. Death, burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. So let me pray with us as we transition into our time of observing the Lord's Supper. So Father, we thank you for the the, the indicator lights, the warnings, the, the scripture that we have read that Paul gave to the Corinthian church. But Father, I find it extremely applicable to our church today. And Father, I pray that you help us to understand our need to return to you. Father, to be a committed body of Christ that is faithful and ready for the work you've called us to. Many hands make light work, but Father, we're not looking for light work or lighter loads. Father, we're looking for stronger backs. Give us the strength needed to follow you. Give us the faithfulness and commitment that is needed to be truly your church. That when people see this place, they recognize surely that is the house of the Lord. Father, we thank you here, and if there's one that does not know you, Father, our our plea is that the Holy Spirit 
would draw them to salvation. They would recognize their need for your son, Jesus. Lord, put their trust and faith in you. We ask these things and commit them to you in the precious name of our Savior. Amen.